Right, chin up, Angie, I can feel gusts of warm air coming at me. This is good. Right, well, where should we start today? We're flying through First Peter. Well, I suspect uh, that I'm not the only one in the room who doesn't like suffering or enduring hardship. Anybody else? Okay, well, I don't like it. I don't even like minor difficulties. You just need to ask my missus about that. If I start the day having run out of shower gel, as far as I'm concerned, you write that day off. It's a total disaster. Uh, you see, you, just like me, we want to be able to design our life and have it according to our sovereign plan. And when I'm at my most honest, I will confess that I want God to play along. I do think I know how to do his job better than he does. And I want you to play along and won't betide you if you get in my way. But too often, all too often, doesn't it seem as if the Lord is playing a different game? He won't be controlled and he brings things into our lives that we certainly wouldn't have put our hand up and said, oh, pick me, pick me. I know what I want, I know I say I want to follow Jesus, but when I'm being honest, uh, I want him to follow me. So when sufferings, or particularly undeserved sufferings, unjust sufferings, when stuff I haven't asked for, undeserved grief, comes my way, my first instinct is to think that the Lord has lost the plot. Am I the only one? Of course I'm not. Lord, what are you doing this for? Quite often it's because I assume I deserve better. I've got something of an entitlement mentality. Or sometimes I assume God could not possibly use that grief, that trial, that suffering or that struggle to bring about any kind of greater good or it couldn't possibly be part of his plan. Now we've been working through 1 Peter and we've been asking the question in the last couple of weeks, What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? If the first one and a half chapters is about what Jesus has done to make us his followers, now we're finding out what it looks like, and this is assuming you're a follower of Jesus here today, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be one of his people? And in chapter 2, verse 11, we got a key verse, didn't we? In fact, look down at it there and you'll see it. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, in other words, he says... The Apostle Peter, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're basically a refugee. You know what refugees are like? Refugees are displaced, not at their home. They're not in their own natural homelands. They can't call where they are now home. They're passing through, hoping to get home one day. And that's what happens to you when you become a Christian. The problem is, is we want to be citizens, not refugees, don't we? We want to settle down here and live as if this is all there is. And so Peter says, you're going to live in a battle next bit to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. What has every single war that has ever been fought on planet Earth been over? All the same thing. Control. That's what a war, that's what a battle's about. Who is going to be the controlling influence on this spot of territory? So the question is, is now that we are refugees, who in our heart, in our life, the place uh, that, that makes us the decision-making, the control centre of our life, our, our hearts, who is going to be the controlling influence? Is it going to be selfishness and pursuing our own ideas and living as if we could, this is our home? Or are we going to be controlled, not by simple desires, but by being made new and renewed in the Holy Spirit to live for God as he intended us to do that? And the amazing thing is, we're told in verse 12, that as we do that, as we, as we having met Jesus, start to be more controlled by Jesus and live, live for the future he has for us, 
it puts us at odds with the world around us. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, that means among the nations, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they look at you and go, you're nuts living like that. Live for the here, live for the now. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The claim here is, is that the Lord Jesus wants to have such a control in our lives that other people see that we're different and it makes them ask questions. Isn't it amazing to think that someone could be brought to faith by watching your life? Now, I just need to ground that for a second. Some of you have given up hope that that will ever happen, haven't you? Haven't you? Because it's been so long since somebody has vocalised to you that they've spotted that you are living differently. Well, we need to decide whether we believe God's word here. God's word says that will happen. Keep making decisions in line with that. But I also need to be clear here, because sometimes we live in a world where people will see a Christian sometimes and say, there's a really nice person. So they'll look at, I don't know, who's not here who I can pick on? I know, Jane Campbell. She's an easy target. The dear old ducks at Welcome Club, they think Jane Campbell's wonderful. She's such a nice person. And who are they giving glory to in that moment? Jane! They've misread the situation. Ask Jane, ask Kosh, he'll tell you. No, no, what you do is you see somebody like Jane acting graciously, doing good deeds, working for somebody else, and you should actually be saying, wow, Jesus Christ has really made a difference in that sinner's life. Now, if Jane were here, she'd put up her hand and say, that's the angle I want you to take from this. But have you noticed how, because of our pride, we want to believe that we can really be nice people by pointing out one over there. But the truth of the matter is, is that when we live differently for Jesus, it's because of Jesus. He has made the difference. Listen, next time you get a compliment, and somebody says, oh, you're really not, or, wow, that was really kind what you did there, what can you not say if you belong to Jesus? Yes! Rather than say, yes, I'm doing all right, what you do is say, oh, Jesus has really made a difference in my life. There you go this week. Why don't you pray for an opportunity to talk about that with your mate? In fact, it's on that piece of paper as a discussion starter. Somebody gives you a compliment, say, thank you for spotting the difference that Jesus has made to me. Who gets the glory in that moment? He does. Not we does, he does. We want people to say, Christ has made a difference. They are different because Jesus Christ is at work. But here's the thing. And we, we had this question the other day in our fellowship group. What, is the, what are the areas of life? What does it mean to, to see your good deeds? What categories of life uh, and areas of our life will it be? Is it, people will look and say, oh, oh yeah, Jesus is awesome because they open their building through the week and let people do cool stuff there. Is that, is that the sort of stuff? Well, those are good things, aren't they? Well, people say, oh, oh that, yeah, Jesus is at work in their life because they watch my, uh, they've watched my kids. Well, they might do. But what we find here in 1 Peter is we're given specific examples, particular target zones, if you like, of good deeds. And you're not going to like this because it's a bit painful. I was reading through this and going, I'm not completely sure I want this to be the case. The example here we find in verses 18 through to 25 is this is the area where you will show that Jesus makes a difference for you 
It's as you face unjust suffering, which we've already said we don't like very much. In fact, this, this section of scripture is so strong, it, 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 we, we, we meet in one of the verses, verse 21, to this you were called. You thought, oh, then I was called to Jesus, wasn't I? No, no, actually what we've been told here is that we are called to unjust suffering for him. That's what we've got. So if you're not a believer, why on earth would you want to be a Christian? If you are a Christian here today, you've got to be jolly sure you want to be. Because we're being told here that we will be, well, to be a follower of Jesus means that we will follow the one who suffered for his enemies that they might be saved. Is that what you want? Because that's what we're facing here. I suppose even as you're listening to this, you could think to yourself, well, hold on, last year, last week, last month, two years ago, ages ago, there was some sort of unjust suffering that came my way, and I'm wondering whether I, how I handled it. Maybe, just maybe, I wasted what the Lord was doing in the midst of it. So what I want you to do is listen really carefully to what, we're, what Peter here says, to, to ask the question as to whether or not... Um, well, there's some repenting to be done, there's some changing to be done, there's some asking the Lord as to whether or not, if that situation comes again, you'll do it differently. Okay? So I've got two main points today. The first one, very easy. Uh, well, both of them are dead easy. The call to endure unjust suffering. And then the second point is the power to endure unjust suffering. So firstly, the call to endure unjust sufferings. Now, it is absolutely horrible to think that, that you might be owned by somebody, but that's what we have in mind here. Look at verse 18. Slaves, submit, to, to, uh, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you have received the beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you. Now back in the first century, they had a system whereby if you got yourself into difficulties, or if you wanted to move up the social ladder of a sort, you could sell yourself into slavery. Now when you think of slavery, you think of uh, the cruel, wicked African slave trade, which was a notch further down the depraved ladder, which is kidnapping people, holding them against their will, uh, and making them do pretty much anything that you wanted to by force of arms. That's a little bit different to the slavery that was around in the first century. I found a, a rather scholarly book that gave me a reasonably good explanation, and I thought I'd read it to you. You ready? The whole fabric of society in the cities of the empire was built upon slavery and was penetrated through and through with that peculiar infection of slavery, civility, and insolence. It is true that at this time the condition of slaves in the cities was somewhat mitigated. In other words, there was a degree of rights, but not many. They were well educated often and often kindly treated, but they had no rights. Women, girls, and boys had no protection against their masters. Their master's will was their only law of virtue, and there was nothing between any slave and the lash except for his master's will, 
wealthy gentlemen who had made their fortunes and secured their freedom, i.e. you could do that, you could secure your freedom, gave great sums to their physicians to remove the scars of the lash or, re- or remove themselves with um, costly ointments to conceal from the eyes of their guests. Do you get that? Basically, if you had a good master, you had a good time, uh, and it'd be okay. You had a bad master, there was not a lot you could do about it. Uh, so, what are we talking about? We're talking about, think Downton Abbey, Abbey, but more depraved. There were people in privilege, they had uh, household servants, back then there weren't factories to go to work. You either worked and did a trade, or else you put yourself under uh, a servant stroke slave thing in the household. Okay? Now, the, the scene's quite, quite simple. These people, these masters... Um, had power over your future, they had power over your social status, they had the power over your opportunities, your welfare, and your income. Now imagine that. Imagine you become a believer and know that this person has got total control over you, but you belong to Jesus. What happens when what the master says, of the master of the household, and what Jesus says conflict? Who's going to win? So imagine the situation, you are taken on as a slave, you've become a Christian, you're taken on as a slave, and because you're in the, the house, under the household of a pagan who worships at the temple and says he wants everybody in his household to worship at the temple, uh, so that there'd be blessings from the deities around on the whole household, you've got to come along and offer incense, what do you do? You decide not to, so you go home and he says, do as you're told. No, I can't. I'll dishonor my God. Do as you're told. I'm going to beat you. Well, you're going to have to beat me then. What happens if you get in trouble via one of the other slaves who doesn't like you and the notice is that you're telling other people in the household to obey Jesus? You're trying to evangelize them. The boss hears about it. What happens to you? You get a beating. What happens if there's business practices under the master's household that you feel go against your conscience as a Christian? What do you do then? What happens, as, it, as commonly did, if you're a young female and the master's, husband, uh, master's wife is away and you're invited into the master's bed because that sort of thing would be quite common, and you say, hold on, I'm a Christian. What, what do you do? That word there that says harsh at the end, well, also those who are harsh, it's where we get the word crooked from, bent, unjust, wonky. How do you handle it? How do you handle it? Well, we're told in this section what we're to do. Verse 18, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So the first thing that you have to do is make sure that you are the best of employees. You are the best slave. If you've got a good master, brilliant, work hard. If you've got a bad master, that's really bad, but still, work hard. Do what you can, willingly, competently, honestly, wholeheartedly. Christians should be the best employees. Um, And this goes as well if you're claiming on benefits. The last thing that you want is to go to the one-stop shop and then, then, and then walk out going, I'm so glad that person just left. Because if they find out you're a Christian, you're utterly going to dishonour the name of Jesus. 
Now you should leave the one-stop shop with them saying, I wish all the people who came in here were as obliging, as polite, and as respectful as that one who's just wandered in. If you're a Christian, you should be the best employee, the most hard-working, and the most respectful of authority. But second of all, we find in verse 22, look, uh, sorry, verse uh, 20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? If you're facing unjust suffering, you have to check that it's unjust suffering. You could be suffering because you're a plonker. You could be suffering because you've made bad choices. You need to ask yourself, am I suffering because of something in me? And sometimes the fact is, we've got it coming. There's this sowing and reaping principle in the scriptures. Consequences. You do something foolish or wrong and your life goes bad, that's because of you, because you're a foolish sinner. So let's give some simple and straightforward examples. These are ones coming almost straight out of Proverbs. Uh, you eat too much, you will put on weight and give yourself the risk of, uh, greater risk of getting diabetes. That isn't somebody else's fault. You drink too much, you'll wreck your liver and you'll set the lives of your kids on a, a path towards the same excuses, blame shifting and escapes that you've been on. That's just a fact. If you're angry and controlling, you will drive everyone who loves you away from them and you'll be the last person to understand why. That's just the way it works. If you sleep too much, you will lose your job and be trapped in dependency upon handouts. These are just simple facts, are they? You can't, when those things happen to you, say, this is a tragedy, because you did it to yourself. And if in the workplace situation, or in the, the situation that these believers were finding themselves, if they're taking a beating because they're diggies, then they can't say it's a tragedy. In fact, it could be that the Lord is trying to teach them something through it. The thing that they should be doing in that situation is say, I need to repent. I need to turn away from my foolishness, my sinfulness, and ask the Lord to put me back together again so I can walk in faith before him. Now that's if you're facing unjust suffering because of your own foolishness. But, but if you are in a situation where you are suffering unjustly, what are we supposed to do? Verse 19, it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But don't be surprised if it comes your way. We call to it. And this is part of the Lord's strategy to, to see his name honoured and more people saved is as we stand and show off the power of Jesus in our life, people will ask us questions. And I was thinking about this. Do I teach my kids that? I don't, do I? I haven't done anything to equip my kids to face unjust suffering for being a Christian. But if I have, I haven't done it very consciously. What I've done is, because I love my kids, I've done everything I can to shelter them from suffering and struggle. I'm just hoping to the Lord that I haven't done anything to encourage them to keep their heads down and to go along with the flow rather than to stand up for Jesus. As parents, we need to be preparing our youngsters to face the difficulties that will come because we're standing by Jesus. So first of all, I'm not surprised it's going to come. You know, I, I've read Mark chapter 8, verse 34, that tells me that anyone who must come after Jesus must deny himself, take up their cross, and follow him. I am called to follow the one who endured the suffering, suffering for the sake of his enemies, 
so that they could be saved. But I suppose I'm supposed to ask the question as to whether I could waste that opportunity. And the answer is, I could do. I mean, you think of some of the things that we have to go through, might have to face. Now, some of you youngsters in school, in school maybe one of your teachers will treat you harshly because they hear that you're a believer and they just give you extra homework or they assume that you're wrong or they blame you for the the nuisance in class. That could happen, couldn't it? How are you going to use that to serve the Lord? In your workplace, you get put on the bum job because you won't go out and get bevied with the boys. You're asked uh, to doctor a report in order that you can get a contract. I was speaking to a mate of mine from university yesterday, he works for uh, British Nuclear Fuels. Uh, he was denied bonuses because of other people's incompetence and he could have got the bonuses and was encouraged to get the bonuses by signing off uh, and, and saying that he had completed the work and his team had completed the work. It wasn't his fault they hadn't completed the work, it was there. He was other team members. But he said, no, I'm not going to claim my bonus. I'm going to be disadvantaged because of integrity. And they all got on his back because of it. Perhaps if you're in school and you're asked to teach that sexual immorality is an equally valid lifestyle choice to walking humbly before God and keeping sex inside a marriage. You're going to get stick for that. Perhaps you'd just be belittled in the canteen because by rumours... Perhaps there'll be somebody vicious who just doesn't like you because you stand for Jesus and you try to do things right. It shows them up a little bit and so they'll try and get leverage on you in the workplace. Uh, perhaps if you are not in the workplace but you're claiming some sort of benefit and you know, you're asked to attend more times and fill in more forms and paperwork because you're trying to do it as you've been asked. Everybody else sags off and just does it the easy way you're trying to claim honestly and it ends up costing you more time, more money, more energy. How do you face all of that? Because all of those things there, they have consequences. Sometimes they're in terms of stolen opportunity. Sometimes they're financial. Sometimes you get misrepresented. And I hate getting misrepresented. And what we're being told here is you've been called to not waste it, to bear it, to endure it. These are the good deeds that will make people stop and ask. So if that's what we call to, secondly, where do I get the power to endure it? Because I don't like a word you're saying there, Steve. I know what you're thinking. You want to run through all the reasons in your mind why you shouldn't have to do this, or why if you have failed in this area, it was justified that you did. In fact, we're highly skilled at finding excuses for being horrible when we're suffering, aren't we? Just ask my kids. We justify it. We make excuses. Let me just ask you, are you the kind of person that when you're having a bad day, everybody else around you knows it? Oh dear, I'm guilty. When you're tired and things aren't going your way, are you irritable? Sometimes what we will do is when suffering and injustice comes our way, we will use it as an excuse to do whatever we jolly well please. Maybe not even come along and gather with God's people and sing his praises as if he was any less deserving in the moments that you're finding it difficult. No, but the scale of the challenge tells me that we're going to need power. Power from outside to be able to do this. And there's three quick things that I want to bring to you. Three things 
But God is giving us here so that we can do what he asks. He never asked us to do anything without promising the, the power to do it. We're not talking about screwing yourself up and finding the determination inside of yourself. Because you can't. You need these three things. So here are the three things. Here are the three things that give us the power to endure unjust suffering. First of all, verse 19, we are conscious of God. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. What does it mean to be conscious of God? It means you actively trust him because he's there. Not I trust God to get me out of this. Sometimes as Christians we can do this. Lord, I'm conscious of you are there and you can get me out of this. Yeah, it's not wrong to ask, Lord, get me out of this. But when you are conscious of God, you go a step further. Not, God, I trust God to get you, I trust you to get me out of this, but I trust you to get me through this. And I know if you, I'm conscious that you're there. I know you are with me and you won't let me down. That word in that, uh, that comes up two or three times in that section, that word commendable, it's charis, it's, it's the word grace gifts. It's the gift of God's presence and his, his ability and his strength to be there with you. Uh, it, it's almost he's giving situations that will make us lean into him. I'm conscious that he's near me and his mercy and his grace are powerfully at work in me through this. He will get me through. God knows my cause. He knows I'm right. Is that enough? I know that we want to be justified before other people, but sometimes it's enough. It should always be enough. But God knows what really happened. And God knows what you're going through. I can leave it with him. I can let go. I can leave it behind. I don't need to doubt he is good. He is with me in it. I will face this conscious of God. He's near. So firstly, we get power from knowing and being conscious of God. Second of all, we get power to endure unjust suffering because of the example of Christ. Have a look at verses 21 and 23. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So we'll get power by seeing the example of Christ. Now I always want to take matters into my own hands. Uh, quite like you do too, because you've been honest enough to tell me. And when you feel like that, it's okay to talk to a Christian friend about it and say, Lord, uh, say, would you pray with me? Lord, help me not to do this. So I'm not suggesting that we don't... It, you know, when we feel these things coming at us, that you just screw it up and pretend it's not there. No, you cannot, but if you vent it, that's a different thing. See, when I'm mistreated, I want to hurl insults and run people down. I want to retaliate. I want to threaten and take back control. In short, I want to play God. I want to be judge, jury and executioner and I can find a whole raft of reasons to justify it in my own mind. And at this point, I have to be careful to say I want to be a follower of Jesus. Because he was so gentle, wasn't he? 
even as those soldiers came to arrest him and they battered him and they trumped up the charges against him. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's following him when he's doing that. You know, we think following Jesus is about doing some big thing for him. No, it's, it's being like him in the most difficult situations, isn't it? You see, as he was beaten, did you hear him curse? I mean, forget out of the workplace. What about within our homes? Every day my heckles are up because I'm facing some whopping great injustice. How dare she come back late? I'm so vain. See, he took it. He took a lot worse than I've ever had to take. He endured it. He bore it. That word there, he bore our sins. That way, bore, uh, it means to, to bear a heavy weight that is, uh, carry a heavy load that is pressing down. Now, I hate to be accused falsely. I want to defend or attack. I want to be right, and I want to be seen to be right. But verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. He could have wiped them away in a jiffy. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Do you believe that he did that for you? You see, you demonstrate true belief, the true belief of your heart in moments when you aren't getting what you deserve. You can fool anybody on a Sunday morning. I can fool you on a Sunday morning, although it's becoming increasingly difficult. You can fool people at other points in the week. But that moment when you are facing unjust suffering and it's crying out to you that you obey it and you just go off on one. It's on that moment where you reveal what you really believe about what Jesus did. So at work, in your home, when you're confronted by your enemies, your belief will show itself in those seconds. You show in those moments. So what I want to do is just appeal to you to say, don't waste those moments. Don't waste them. Don't waste them. If you've entrusted yourself to him, it won't be a waste. In those moments, do you let sin and envy in? Do you let bitterness and rage? Have you done when the Lord has sent you those moments? Have you failed? And if you do, you need to hear the last thing that this passage tells us. This last source of power as to how we will live differently. You need to hear it, not just so that you can live differently, so that you know your past is put behind you. Not that Christ is merely your example, but the last thing is that Christ we find here is our substitute. He's our substitute. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And now as Peter 
brings this to them. Have you noticed? I was struck by this, how intensely personal. It's really up close and personal. It all is in those verses. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we, that's you and me, that's people, that's us, that's his people, might die to sins and live for toward righteousness. By his, his sins, you have been healed, believer. For you were, this is what you were, you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned. Do you get the point? It's so personal here. You will only be able to live enduring unjust sufferings. You'll only be able to live like this if you have had the kind of crisis that brought you to Jesus to experience him personally. This is not what we're talking about today, do-goodism. This is living that is born out of a personal experience of Jesus bearing your sin and failure. See, at a deep level, you sensed that my worst problem is personal. It's not a problem that is outside of me. And I do face injustice. And I, and I do hurt because of what other people have done. And there is pain. And I don't want to minimize that. But my greatest problem is not out there and what people have done to me. My greatest problem is an internal problem and what I've done to God. You see, I'm the unjust one. I'm the cruel one. I'm the victimizer of God. I abuse God. I made Jesus the victim of my sinful selfishness. And he has borne it. Oh, he's put up with it. When you endure hardship, what you're doing is you've just been a little bit like God who puts up with us century after century, week after week, day after day. And he does it with a purpose. He does it with the purpose of visiting salvation into our lives. And Jesus went there. And it wasn't pretty and it wasn't sanitized. It was a crucifixion. It was about as ugly as it could get. It was an act of terror and abuse. It was psychological torture. The whole design of crucifixion was to maximize cruelty and hurtfulness and indignity. And Christ went there. Crucifixion was designed to take everything from you. Verse 24, he bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. But why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. To die to sins means not just that the penalty is paid, but the power is broken. We used to be under the domain of sin. But sin no longer rules in us. So it used to be where I was quite happy to walk my way and do what was most interested for my kingdom, but suddenly I've been awoken from that. I don't have to give in to my sin anymore. Because Christ has broken its power, I can now say no to sin. Like back in verse 11, I can abstain from sinful desires. I am free to do that, as we were learning from Anthony last week. I am free. He has set me free and given me a new status and a new direction that I might 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Live towards righteousness. I suddenly have a heart to want to be like him. When I see his example, before I would mock it, but now I'm exhilarated by it. Now I want to be it. I don't know why I'm even signing up for this. I must be an idiot. To follow a crucified look? Yes, I do. I want to live to righteousness. I struggle. It's hard. I get it's wrong. But that's what I want to do. See, my old existence was I was a sheep. But now he has returned me to him. He is guarding my soul. And he serves his enemies as they were visiting suffering on them, on him. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he went through with it because of a greater goal in mind. Now, if this isn't real for you, don't think you can do it. If Jesus being your substitute isn't real in your heart, you won't endure unjust suffering for him. You can't. You need him to bring it in deep. You need him to say, this is who I am now. This isn't natural, it's supernatural. And this lovely bit of the Bible that I'm sure you're so glad we opened today tells us that the Lord will put us in situations that will defy human endurance. But you will endure, and people will ask why. Because Jesus' power for you in your life today is real. So you, and you must answer, Jesus, have you made a difference in my life? And people will say, I don't quite get it. And you can go to them, Jesus has made a difference in my life. Sometimes you don't even get asked. People will just clock it. And they'll log it away for years. And they'll remember. And it'll influence. Because you've been conscious of him. Because you followed his pattern. And because you experienced the power of his substitutory, substitutionary death. So I'm about to finish. But we need to think about how we finish with this before we sing a song. Well, to start off with, we need to ask ourselves whether we've got anything we need to repent of. Are there frustrations and bitternesses that you're still harboring in your heart because of hardship that the Lord has called you into? You hadn't planned it. You hadn't asked for it. It was unjust and it wasn't because you deserved it. Perhaps you need to just repent of wasting the opportunity. You were wearing a badge of Christian but you confirmed to the unbelievers who are watching you their suspicion that Christians are no difference and Jesus makes no difference. Perhaps you need to repent of that. Say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. But I suppose, second of all, we need to look again. Ask yourself, where in your life have you or are you facing unjust sufferings or can you see them come around the corner? And you need to say today, Lord, don't let me waste them. I don't just want to endure them. I want to endure them like Christ. I want want His purposes to be worked out through them. I want 
his grace in my life to make a difference. Help me endure, Lord. Because when I face personal loss for the sake of Jesus Christ, I want to be preaching the gospel of a suffering saviour with all of my life and not just my lips. So let me say again, isn't it amazing that someone could be brought to faith by watching your life? Do you trust the Lord in that? Let's pray together.